This is a poem by Jim Morrison. I don't know the title of it. I'm literally just looking at it on Google image search for <laughs> under Jim Morrison poem. <laughs> is it like over a it's... picture of Jim Morrison with his shirt off? Is... <laughs> no, no. Um, people need connectors. Writers, heroes, stars, leaders to give life form. A child sand boat facing the sun. Plastic soldiers in the miniature dirt war. Forts garage rocket ships, ceremonies, theater, dances, to reassert tribal needs and memories, a call to worship, uniting, above all, a reversion, a longing for family, and the safety magic of childhood. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what, oh, was that the doors of perception just blowing wide open? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I do feel like that is uh, indicative of this in, uh, this entire movie's like intellectual level. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. Bobby Krieger, guitar player. John Densmore. Percussionist, 22 years old. Far out. Uh, Pamela Morrison, ornament. Raymond Daniel Manzarek, 121239, position. Name, occupation? Uh, Jim. On a day, you know the day destroys a night. Night divides the Sides day. are being chosen. The planet is screaming for change, Morrison. We gotta make the myths. Oh! You need to say the first shaman invented sex. They call him the one who makes you crazy. I'm the lizard king! I can do anything! Jim Morrison, the god of rock. say right at the start like for my entire life i have hated this kind of stuff and i definitely found jim morrison to be insufferable in this movie but i feel like i do have a kind of appreciation for him now to where even when you were reading that poem i was like i i agree yeah definitely i mean i agree with you jim morrison but it's just like so overwrought and so pretentious the way that you're saying it you know i kind of liked i kind of liked him by the end of this movie i know he's awful well, isn't it also that, like, by the end of the movie, when the title card comes up, you know, and it's like, he was 27, you're like, oh, yeah, he was a fucking baby, He's a fucking baby. right? Yeah. And so it's yeah. like, of course the poetry was bad. Of course he was fucking awful. He was a child thrown into, like, an abs- like an egotistical nightmare with, like, addiction problems. Yeah. Um. So in that sense, at the end, he's at the very least pitiable. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can... You can empathize with the man a little bit. Um, that said, uh, let's like let's do an introduction here. Yeah, great. Um, okay, this is uh, thirty years later. 
I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri. This is my co-host, Chris Chafin. I don't want to say my co-host, maybe the co-host. <laughs> it's, I'm like your co-host. co-host. It's fine. It's, like it's a, fine. A form of ownership. It's a form of violence and, and colonialism. And yes, it's also accurate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, we're joined today by uh, one of the funniest people on Twitter, a really fantastic writer. Uh, very happy to have her, Maggie Sirota. Maggie, thanks so much for being here. That Wow, that was quite an intro. Thank you. You can't, the cameras are off, so you can't see the blushing. <laughs> <laughs> um and today we are talking about um uh, I, I, oliver stone's 1991 uh, film the doors which came out 30 years ago this week uh as per usual with this show that is titled 30 yeah. years ago and um the reason that it came out earlier in the year it co- is because by the end of the year jfk came out he released two movies in the same year the Doors at the beginning of the year and JFK at the end of the year. Wow. Which is considering the, um, no matter what you think about those movies, I think considering the sort of like technical achievements of those movies, that's pretty incredible and just totally insane. Uh, but we're here to talk about The Doors. Um, at the end of the year, maybe we'll get to talk about JFK and we'll do a 10 part episode. <laughs> on it. I was going to say, just considering the length of those two movies, it's pretty amazing. You know, we'll do a, we'll do a seance to get Jim Garrison onto our podcast. <laughs> and get the truth. Um, or maybe Clay Shaw. That would be better. Clay Shaw, or at the very least, Tommy Lee Jones as Clay Shaw. Um, uh, so I, I guess first things first with this one, let's talk about, uh, the Doors themselves, the band. Uh, Maggie, what's, what was your first experience with, um, you know, the band The Doors? I think it was probably when the movie originally came out. Um, so I was probably 10 years old. So that's when I first even knew that uh, there was a band called The Doors. Um, and then so I started seeing the posters and like Spencer's gifts, which kind of this is, kind of feels like the Spencer's gifts of movies. Yes, hundred <laughs> percent. Yes. Um, and I first became aware of them. Yeah. So around then, and then in middle school, I got into them a little bit. Now, but then I quickly came to my senses. Um, Wait, can I the, just can we just interrogate yeah. that a little? When you tell me that you got into the Doors a little bit in middle school, like like what mm-hmm. are we talking? Like you bought a couple of CDs at Camelot, or did you have? Did you have like Jim Morrison posters or like? No, like oh that? no, 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 no. Um, I think I taped some songs off like a friend's album. <laughs> yeah, but it was great, just the kind of thing great. it felt like. This is something I'm supposed to like. This is supposed to be deep, right? This is supposed to be kind of subversive, like. Exactly. I'm with you 100% on this, Maggie. I had a flirtation with the Doors in seventh yeah. and eighth grade as well, and it was out of this idea of like, oh, this is like adult. This yeah. is like what cool adults listen to, and then high school rolled around, and I was like. Uh, sucks. it's pretty cartoony yeah, like and discover- weird yeah i did that same yeah, thing I with discovered, the, like this- punk and hardcore and i was like oh no this is what gets the blood pumping <laughs> yes exactly yeah i was gonna say i did this not with the doors but with like the sex pistols where i would like mm-hmm. carry like never mind the bollocks around on cd and when we were like in my aunt's house i would be like can i play this cd for a minute and i would <laughs> sit in the corner and listen to the sex pistols <laughs> <laughs> like i think me late in high school like trying to play raw power for for my parents or something or being like no it's iggy pop it's cool and it's like you know he's like give me danger and they're like oh this kid's fine we're done like what did we do wrong i mean i have a frustration with the doors because they're in a way indirectly inescapable to me because 
every band I genuinely love was hugely influenced by the Doors. Like, well, this is something I like to talk about, like because we're going to talk yeah. about the most '90s thing. But uh, watching this movie, you're like, "Oh, that's what every single band like after 1991 is doing, like and yeah, before like, as well, obviously." Right. So late '70s, like Joy Division, like you hear it in the vocals. Um, you know, Ian. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like huge, huge, huge fan, and then Julian Cope. I, you know, like that first yeah. Teardrop Explodes album. I love huge Doors. Echo, it's right? Like, Echo and the Echo Bunnymen. Echo and the Bunnymen love. Like, every time I see Echo and I mean, the they Bunnymen... covered People Are Strange for the Lost Boys soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. And every time they play that in the concert, that's where I time my bathroom break. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, the door is covered. All right, cool. Go to the bathroom, get back before they do the cutter. Like, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that's true. I never, for some reason, I never really thought of those sort of new wave... Um, uh, no wave. I guess not. No wave. I guess they are technically all you know. New wave. Joy Division. Uh, New Order. Echo like, and the Bunny Kind of post punk. Post punk. You know, yeah. Yeah. I never really. I for some reason I never noticed the Doors influence. Maybe because I just didn't want to. And I was always kind of like the Doors influence to me was always on like Pearl Jam or Creed. And then and that's how I was able <laughs> to kind of be like the Doors suck. I like the Stone Temple <laughs> Pilots are like supposedly yeah, they yeah. asked Michael Hutchins to, was going to play Jim Morrison at some point from NXS. Really? Well, that definitely makes sense because Hutchins was always trying to go for like the Jim Morrison yes. look, like 100%. that one I got. But yeah, NXS was so much more of a fun band. Than, yeah, and uh, it's also he just like were. like I think Michael Hutchins had this like kind of undeniable like sexual charisma yeah. that wasn't bogged down in like drugs and like heavy affectation and pretending <laughs> to be like a shaman right he was just like having a good time like dancing yeah. around you know being sexy like i am i am genetically blessed i am you know <laughs> we should all enjoy was... me together yeah exactly i am a gift for all of you <laughs> i think that it. my i think that any appreciation appreciation that i had of the doors as a uh adolescent or teen was definitely completely beat down by philip seymour hoffman as lester bangs in almost famous when he has that line in the radio station where he's he says jim morrison's a drunk masquerading as a poet the guess who are drunks and that's what makes them poets and then he puts on iggy pop raw power and i was like this is me this is i was like 15 right and i was like this is who i am this is who i am this is who i am i mean yeah i also Um, kind of grew up thinking of them as being like a thing for phony people who thought they were interesting, but really they sucked. Like that was kind of the rap I had on the doors as like a kid in the nineties for whatever reason, you know? Why do you think that was? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I guess not like when I was like a really little kid, but maybe when I was in like later high school and early college, you know, and I worked at the college radio station. 11, 11 years old. And you're like, the doors are for phonies. Yeah. <laughs> I did have I've talked before about like I had this older brother, you know, who would like was very influential on me and he would make me like butthole surfers mixtapes when I was like right. yeah, 10 and he used to tell me about like liking the flaming lips and then I saw them on MTV and I was like I got really excited and I told him and he was like, "Huh, they were on MTV, huh?" <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Oh no." Uh, <laughs> when selling out was a thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um so the movie uh, is 1991. It's uh, Oliver Stone, I believe, fresh off of Born on the Fourth of July, like a string yes. of hits, Plato- um, talk radio, Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July. 
He's kind of maybe the hottest director working in Hollywood right now. Socially significant, self-important, stylish, stylish movies. Mm. Um, and this, the story of The Doors or a movie about The Doors has been floating around Hollywood at this point for like 15 years. But before, before Stone got onto it, uh, Brian De Palma had interest in making it. Um, Ooh, so a I couple would, that would have been interesting. I mean, that would have been really cool. I mean, it would have just yeah. been pure, nonstop sex. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> and like probably other members of the band watching security footage in split screen of Jim Morrison sleeping with women. I don't, I, I think it would have been just peeping Tom shit with Robbie Krieger. Um, <laughs> and I think Scorsese had flirted with it in some capacity. And Tom Cruise was apparently thought of to star in it in the mid 80s. Would have been awful. As, as Jim Morrison? Um, as Jim Morrison, yeah. yeah. Get out. Wow. Yeah. That would have been I like when he was have... in that musical. Like what? what? Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, yeah. that That's what we would have gotten in this movie, you know? I would have loved that so much. <laughs> uh, it would be like, I feel like it would be, have you ever seen Star 80? With Eric Roberts, I haven't, but I've like I know about it. Oh. I know the well, concept. The... I, I know what it's about. I haven't seen it though. He's a psychopath, and uh, he's the guy who murders her. Right. And at one point, he's doing like he's like lifting weights in his underwear in the mirror to like disco music, and mm -hmm. he like stops and looks in the mirror and claps his hand and smiles and like introduces himself to himself like seven times. And I just God. imagine Tom Cruise doing that as Jim Morrison. Just be like, yeah, I'm Jim Morrison. <laughs> yeah, Jim Morrison. Nice to meet you. <laughs> like over and over again. Like doing the finger um, gun to people. Like, ha! <laughs> totally. Like clasping his hands together and like a big <laughs> smile on his face. <laughs> Jim Morrison. <laughs> like over and over. Um, but then Oliver Stone being the hot shit director that he is, he finally gets it. There's apparently like a ton of issues with uh, Ray Manzarek who doesn't like his yeah. approach. But and the weird thing is um, they keep offering, he, he keeps getting involved and getting fired or like the production company goes out of business and they keep bringing him back like over and over again. And the band like all hate him, I guess, and don't want him to, or I guess Ray Manzarek especially, and don't want him to do it. And yet he keeps coming back and getting involved. And yeah, the movie falls through, but then Coralco Pictures um picks it up Coralco pictures was like the hottest game in town in the late 80s early 90s this is like the rambo series terminator 2 total recall basic instinct just an, an insane amount of uh, of 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 money and box office coming from this studio and they get it and they give him 40 nearly 40 million dollars in 1990 to make uh this this fucking movie um and val kilmer uh auditions by sending his like a tape he spent twenty thousand dollars on making uh to to show how much he could be like jim morrison he gets cast and then um they uh they start that's that, that's the movie that we watched yeah speaking of um all the bands influenced by the doors like apparently ian astari of the cult got offered the role yes and i guess turned yes. it that's down right and he, i think right. he filled in for jim morrison like during a later Doors tour. Yeah, supposedly he didn't want to do it because he thought that it was, it, he didn't like the way Jim Morrison was portrayed in the movie. Right. Right. And that's apparently why Manzarek didn't, either didn't like the movie or didn't want to do it either. Right? Yeah. It seems like he didn't like how a lot of people were portrayed. <laughs> well, it's interesting to read a lot of the stuff about, I was reading about it too and like, um, 
all the band members, like they've all written all these memoirs in the years since this movie came out. And they're always like nitpicking like individual scenes, you know, and they're like, Oh, Jim didn't carry his groceries with his left hand. Oliver Stone is out <laughs> to lunch. And it's like, they're just very fixated on these weird little details into my mind. Um, I mean, I understand it's like a movie about a person they personally knew. So it's like, right. That, it's hard not to have that point of view on it, but it just seemed ridiculous to me. But it's also not, and we'll get into this later, but it's also not a movie even really about a person. Exactly. At, eventually, it's Jim Morrison is this Oliver Stone-like grand metaphor for the optimism and failure of the 60s. And so therefore, like, it has to be laser focused on um, addiction and, and alcoholism and, and how, like, he couldn't change, he couldn't grow and change with the time. And so therefore he had to burn out rather than, you know, fade away like the rest of the, the, the boomer generation who just went into the seventies with um, suburban lifestyles like Ray Manzarek and his wife do at one, at one point. I mean, I could see being pretty pissed off at the very least feeling like this isn't about a guy I knew. This is about like right. simply who you wanted him to be for your grand statement. Or this is like who this is like my friend is the guy you're projecting all of your issues onto. Right. Like he's kind of right. the receptacle for all your kind of grand like existential anxiety. And like, meanwhile, like what... the doors is like actually a band that I was in. And this is, I know this is going to be like the main way everybody thinks that my entire life was forever because it's like going to be a big, huge movie about it. So yeah, I mean, I can understand why you would be pretty pissed off. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And plus, it's like you don't really kind of really get a sense of who anyone was. No. Like, I mean, I feel like, like you get no, a sense no of Jim Morrison to... like through like metaphor and action, you know, and yeah. like deep <laughs> poetry, but not by like learning the facts of his life or whatever, you know. Right. But even just like, like, what can you say about Ray Manzarek oh, yeah. from this movie? He has great like, hair. He was, <laughs> like, he was a real good sport. Yeah. <laughs> He was the serious one who knew business. Like that's what, that's like kind of what you glean based off of him saying in the first scene that we meet or the second scene that we meet, let's make a million dollars. And then that he's the one who it seems is responsible for selling light my fire to the car company or the energy company. Yeah. And he's like, the commercial. he's like a little older and yeah, they're all just like goofing around, having a good time at that first session. He's like, everybody get out. I got to work out the intro. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, I got it. And I was like, it still sucks. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't really. Oh, you're going to get famous off of that. Oh, Bummer. God. Why did you think there um, needed to be a 45 second organ intro on this song? It could just start, you know, like, well, I was, um, something oh, ahead, I was kind of curious about was like what the actual calculus was in Ray Manzarek's head when, when um, Jim is reading him the poetry on the beach. Like, is he, <laughs> is he really thinking like, is he really thinking, Oh, these lyrics are incredible. We need to get this artistic vision out there. Or was he thinking, all right, this guy is really hot. Girls will come to the show and see this guy. Like, was that? Yes. A hundred percent. I think that's I what I guarantee the latter. Yes. And the movie did not want to face that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, speaking as someone, you know, like who likes dudes, like, like, I mean, looking at like Val Kilmer in his prime, was not hard like that was kind of something that made this, this impossibly movie. beautiful he's, yes. yeah he's amazing looking he's absolutely amazing looking and he does look a lot like jim morrison or like you know better than jim morrison right yeah he looks like jim morrison but better looking than yes. jim morrison yeah and one of the difference between between that 
between him and Jim Morrison again is it's is age. Like if you look at those pictures of Jim Morrison that uh, Val Kilmer is taking with Mimi Rogers, it's like the famous album cover photos where he's shirtless yeah. and stuff. If you actually go look at the photos of Jim Morrison, he's small, like a twenty year old. Yeah, like he looks like a he looks like a child in a way. Versus Val Kilmer, who's like thirty two when they're making this, and is like a full bodied adult. There's just like a difference in perspective of like. I wonder if you had cast somebody like, I I, I don't know, some like young kid actor in this part versus Leonardo like a 31. 30, yeah. Like, I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio in 1990 was probably like eight or nine. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Was like hard. yeah. He was still well, living I'm, up the Seavers. Wasn't yeah. He, he was on growing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you were to think of someone who's like a 20 year old actor now who looks really young, I, I, have no idea who went Dude, like, like, John, honestly like, i'm looking at one of these full body pictures of jim morrison with his shirt off he fucking looks like napoleon dynamite like a hundred percent like yes he's lanky he's like super lanky yes, no muscle he's like he's really not... skinny yeah yeah um and there's a different there's almost like a like looking at that photo there's a greater tragedy uh than like what than watching val kilmer do it and like Part of that is like when you watch Val Kilmer do it, you're like, oh, look at this piece of shit ego. Well, by the time he's he like, like overdosing on heroin or dying of heart failure, quote unquote, he looks like he's about 45 years old, you know, and he's gained <laughs> like 100 pounds and he's got a big beard. But like, yeah, oh, when he's when he's in like his Chris Christopherson face. Yeah, he looks exactly like Chris Christopherson. <laughs> yeah, I thought the same thing. <laughs> Drinking whiskey on airplanes um, and like give, recording the world's first podcast. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, speaking of which, the movie opens with one of his uh, with with one of his audio recordings, and of course, the first line is, "Did you have a good life enough to base a movie on it?" <laughs> like that's the like, oh, okay, because we're gonna watch a movie, Mister Stone. Thank you. <laughs> oh, and also, I think the um, so when they're watching the pretentious student film, and he gets like booed out of class rightfully. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What an amazing way to start this movie, by the way. Like, what? That's amazing. Yeah, which was like, yeah, definitely the right reaction. Like that had all the hallmarks of a pretentious ass like student film. Like apparently the um Hitler wasn't in that in the movie that that Jim shown. That was completely an Oliver Stone invention. So that might be part of the reason why the rest of doors just don't like this movie. <laughs> they showed the well, first I, thing it shows is him like putting Hitler in a movie. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Again, because isn't it like Oliver Stone using that student film as a means to like showcase the horrors of the of the twentieth century, leading up to the sort of like uh, mind opening idealistic idea of what the sixties could be. Like he clearly in writing the script was like, oh, student film. Like this could be the moment where we like establish for the audience where the 60s were coming from yeah and i mean i think mm. it's also the stuff you're talking about about the like the crazy id of the 20th century is in this movie because it's like jim morrison connecting with hitler another charismatic historical individual you know like who just had the power to command people you know of course something in his subconscious is you know tickled by the the idea of hitler <laughs> Like Chris, Chris didn't I mean? Don't you guys feel like you also, Chris? We were talking about this before, but that I went to college with kids like oh, this. Yeah. Like I knew kids like this, and they sucked so much. They were the most unfun, irritating people to talk to at a party because you would be trying to have a a conversation, and they would be like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." It's like when the dream is gone, but by the stars. You're like, oh fuck but off! When we have man. a conversation, like, who's really talking? 
Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. yeah I, I've, I, like, I've dated a bunch, like, versions of that guy. Oh, my God, like, have you really? Yeah, in college. <laughs> I'm so like, sorry. Oh, no. And it's like, you know, it's time to bail when, like, the black and white composition notebook comes out. Oh, God. Because <laughs> it's just so cliched. I mean, was it the, as cliched when Jim Morrison was doing it? Like, I think it was, because it, he's imitating, what, like, beat poets and... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. By the time he's doing it, it's like, yeah, it's what's left over from the beat years. And because he doesn't even, he's like, you're saying he's 19 at the start of this movie in like 19, you know, whatever. What When, when is this movie supposed to start? Like 67 or 65? 65, he arrives in California. Um, and then uh, in 1970, he's found guilty of indecent exposure. Uh, in 71, he moves to Paris. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, sixty-five to seventy-one. That's crazy that all this happened in six years. Like. Yeah. Geez. I feel like I mean, this you... is a movie. I mean, I think if my takeaway from this movie is you can get away with a lot if you're good looking. Yes, a hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. That is like my. I think the one lesson I learned from this movie. It's like Jim Morrison can do right, anything like he wants. He, was... he gets incredibly rich and famous, and it's just because he's like super cute. Like while he was holding a a knife to his uh, girlfriend's throat at a Thanksgiving party, everyone was standing around being like, he's just so good looking. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. And it's like, he can do things like invite his mistress to his Thanksgiving with his partner. (laughs) 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 Womp womp. (laughs) It's it's just Jim. Um, It's just Jim being Jim. Um. What's it? You know, he died in 1971. This movie was made in 1991. We are right. 10 years past the amount of time so that they had passed in terms of like the door, him dying and the Doors movie getting made, which means nothing really, but also one of those things that feels very It feels strange. very weird, right? To think that it was more recent. Like this is like a, like a, like a Britney Spears movie would be like this now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which we got. We just got yeah, one. Yeah, the Times documentary. Yeah. Um. I want to say that, like, uh, as as much as I can make fun of a lot in this movie, and this movie is very Oliver Stoney. Yes. Uh, it is also incredibly beautiful to look at, and like an amazing technical feat. You know. Yes. yes. It's they gave him thirty eight million dollars in nineteen ninety, adjusted for inflation. That is eighty million dollars to make this movie, and so every shot. It just looks like a fucking movie where you get I mean, the to crowd see, like, scenes the, at the end of the movie where he they're having these giant doors performances and Val Kilmer's running around through the audience and there's just oh, like those are great. Yeah. hundreds, thousands of people in this arena and Val Kilmer is really singing and like it's it, and there's no digital work being done to like insert crowd members. That's right. actual fucking extras they that they put in there. Camera on the ceiling or whatever or on some gigantic crane and there's. 2,000 people running around and screaming like that's amazing and it you just it completely transports you out of yourself you don't feel like you're you know you think you're watching a concert you just don't even think about it for a second you know that's that concert scene where he it's basically like he has descended descended into like full-on alcoholism and he's like he, he he was on an airplane begging for heroin and he's fat now and he's late for the show and they get him to the show and like all the other band members are yelling at him. And John Densmore is saying a very cliche thing, which is like Jim, he's like saying it as he's walking by, like clearly they're just trying to get it into the movie. Cause it's almost like off camera. He's like, used to be about, uh, it used to be about expanding your mind. Now it's about escaping. And then he like walks off. <laughs> <Yeah. camera. laughs> and then he gives, he gives um, 
Frank Whaley is Krieger like a tab of acid. And then he walks out into the arena and it's like, it's, it, it, it's like Dante's Inferno. Yes. It's like blood red all around. Thousands of Everyone's extras naked, around sweating, a, you know, dancing around a fire pit in the background. It's unreal and something that you would never see in a movie now. Oh Ray Manzarek s- sees spectral um, Native Americans. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. You would, I mean, you would just never see a shot like that in a movie. I, the closest thing you get, honestly, is a CGI shot in the Avengers with like a digital background and like all these other like cartoon digital characters driving in, you know, like, Oh, it's like hundreds of CGI. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is here. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> RBG is here. And everybody else that we lost this year, all of our lib heroes. Oh, our lib heroes. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, I think that what I think is interesting, this scene you're talking about, like, yeah, it is like hell, and it's like we've just been spending maybe like twenty minutes of this extremely long movie gearing up for this scene, and like there's it has its own title card, and everybody's like, "Where's Jim?" And then he starts giving the performance, and it's like amazing. It's so <laughs> compelling. It's so beautiful. I thought personally, like, and it's really Val Kilmer singing, like I said, and it's like. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> you know, like I found Jim Morrison so insufferable personally, but then some of the musical sequences are so transcendent, you know? Yeah. And I think that is kind of the point, one of the points of the movie, right? Is that this person is like a complete disaster and a horrible person, but in a certain way, there's something pure about what they're doing and it allows them to make this performance, you know, like, like they couldn't do this good thing without doing all this other awful stuff. You have to think that the thing they did was good though. And I thought we were all on the same page that the doors were not good. But I like it in the movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, did you not like that concert sequence? Yeah, it was great. I I mean, there was a shot. I mean, I I love the way it's filmed. Do you remember the last song they play? Was it um, LA woman? Um, Like right as that last shot, like as that, like you just see the sun, like the sunset over, Los Angeles, I just thought it was gorgeous. Yeah. Is that um before is that after he is uh no, that's Riders on the Storm, right? When he's like saying goodbye to the band. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like Ricky, did you like I were you not like moved by the power of these all these people together in this crazy communal emotional moment? Uh I, I it never made me in embrace Jim Morrison or the, or the doors that much, but I was consist I was consistently embracing the, the filmmaker well, yeah, because I, mean, I just yeah. could not believe that they were able to, I mean, the difficulty of pulling something like that off is, is seems impossible when it comes to movies. Now, like yeah. the closest thing that we've probably got to that is, is once upon a time in Hollywood, which is like actually a lot of the same production team that were on this movie. Is that um, true? Yeah, it's the same cinematographer, and it's a lot of it's like the same production designer, um, a a woman who I don't think actually has worked that much, but the cinematographer pulled her. I think I believe I could be making this up out of my ass, but pulled her out of retirement because of her working with her on the doors, and because they were basically recreating the strip. It's like the the same same era, era. right? Basically, Yeah. yeah. And so they and so they kind of pulled her out, but that was a that was like a ninety to one hundred million dollar movie. And so that makes perfect sense considering, like we said, adjusted for inflation, how much this movie costs then. But even in Hollywood, you don't get some of the some of the kind of shots that you get in this movie where it feels like a biblical epic yeah. at times in this movie. And then at the other at other times, it just feels like 
a self-indulgent, misogynistic, so narcissistic. <laughs> so oh fucking God, dumb. yeah. Well, can we I talk about the scene where they all are doing LSD in the desert? Like, how does how does uh, everybody feel about this scene? Like, well, actually, before we talk, I want I want to talk about that, but because I just said self-indulgent, narcissistic, misogynistic mess, I do want to ask you guys the question. And I have so many more notes, <laughs> but I do want to ask. I mean, we could get question. to all of the things. Like, I'm yeah. not, I'm not moving us along. I do, like, I do want to ask like one question about. Um, you know, there's always, I feel like the, the conversation on the internet about does depiction equal, um, endorsement? Um, oh, yeah. like is Martin Scorsese endorsing gangsters by depicting them this, no. uh, the way that he is? And I kept having that conversation with myself while watching this movie. Does Oliver Stone not necessarily endorse Jim Morrison, but is he glorifying or glamorizing him and i would wonder that and then at the times i'd be like no not at all he's actually depicting a maniac yeah and i yeah. think he's very aware that he's depicting a, a destructive horrible maniac the only problem really is that oliver stone himself is a maniac is a maniac <laughs> and also a raging misogynist well i mean have you, you've, you've read some of the stuff about like the auditions and the casting right and just the really yes. dark shit that he no tell me what, what 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 is this stuff multiple um, women <laughs> well okay so um there's one melissa gilbert had she um she auditioned for the pamela they all they all auditioned for yeah pamela for for meg ryan's part and um, he just wrote like this very humiliating sex scene for her that's not in the film I guess it was over some imagined slight he thinks happened between them at a party. I don't remember the backstory, but um, where she has to get down on her hands and knees and like beg to be fucked. And it's like the only reason he's doing this is to humiliate her. This is not in the film. It's like he just wants to to harass her. So and then there's he what he like made her do this at the audition or something. Is yeah, that, oh yeah. God. She only spoke about it recently. I think like 2017 when a lot of me too. Um. Like when me, when me too was kind of really getting its momentum, mm -hmm. but and then there was a, a retired actress. I'm blanking on her name right now, um, but like at like Val was pulling the like method card. Like he was like roaming around L.A. like in Jim Morrison getup and you know embodying the character, et cetera, et cetera. And he apparently punched her in the face during his audition with an open fit or a closed fist rather. And while Oliver Stone just watched. Uh, laughed i thought oh the, oh he laughed okay oh yeah huh. and then they they then they settled they did a they they said there was like a small settlement with her and she broke the nda to talk about it like you know 20 years later 30 years later wow. title of the show years <laughs> later baby <laughs> there it is yeah. yeah but then but then not not just with it i mean there are other stories of oliver stone doing such things in auditions and being um you know in the rumor mill a bit of a casting couch director yeah yeah um, that and just like just like groping women at parties like yes and he i think um, he just really skeeved the hell out of patricia arquette during like when he was trying trying to cast her for something and she was and he just like unloaded some complete psycho trip on her yeah it's and you just kind of see like there's not a lot of and you kind of see his attitudes towards women reflected in his in the film because they're either either naked or like or they're harpies or <laughs> like there's I not mean, a lot of satanists or who yeah. is pam who is pamela in this movie who is she? she has no personality at all yeah what? none whatsoever yeah. and then 
in the one scene where she where we see her cheating on Jim, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He becomes he locks her in a closet. He basically he sets, sets her it on, on fire. fire. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Like right? yeah. and the movie and doesn't really comment the... on that at all. Like it just happens exactly. and then it's over. That is a moment in the movie where I was like, okay, am I supposed yeah. to I mean, this is truly horrific. Well, because it's supposed like, to be his like I descent think... into madness, but at the same time, it's like, well, no, he fucking tried to murder her to burn her alive. Like, they're supposed to be yeah, real like, people, you know? I don't give a fuck about him at this point. Like, he's a monster. Yeah, no, he's I, a really you he's know, abusive to her the whole time. Like, he's emotionally time, manipulative. Yes. Like, he's like. Will but at the same time, me? like, Will how did you guys feel about Meg Ryan? I felt like Meg Ryan is a very odd choice for this part. I, I don't. I mean, I love Meg Ryan, she looks, obviously. She but... looks like her. I would say she's an odd, odd choice, but I don't know who the character is supposed to be. Well, like, yeah, I good don't... point, right? <laughs> you know, so I, this I, is what I, I'm I saying. Maybe really another say... actor would have like given the, the character some character, you know? You can't really say she's miscast when you don't know what, like, who the person <laughs> is or what you're casting for. Yeah, just someone um, to go like, oh, Jim, we're having company tonight. <laughs> like that's. <laughs> I remember I watched this movie like in in like high school with my friend, and we would always like, we would always like do impressions of that scene. Like, oh, Jim, like that was something that stuck with us. Like, <laughs> like oh, it's the nag girlfriend. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. just on some low grade acid. Just just some mellow you put, stuff. You, you really put your dick in this woman, Jim. <laughs> You just don't know when to quit, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I love oh I love God. in the beginning when um he's showing her her poet his poetry for the first time and she goes she goes it's beautiful. I've never read much poetry before. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, "Oh yeah, this is like America listening to Jim Morrison in the Doors for the first time." <laughs> like, "Oh, it's poetry. I don't really know much about poetry." <laughs> like uh, Mary had a little lamb, you know, poetry. <laughs> and then like his early seduction of her is such a male depiction of well, fucking, seduction by the way right? he like follows her home yes, from the sunset exactly. strip like or whatever from venice beach or and whatever then, and then he, he tells sneaks. her later he's like i stalked you home from and she was like oh wow i'm so flattered <laughs> like, dude, he guy... sneaks into her home while she's with another guy like he crawls in through the window and apparently like if that happened in real life, she was like, that's so brave. I'm going to go with this guy again. But the sixties were like a different time, I guess, in terms of like how people yeah. related to each other in behavior. Like people maybe didn't get creeped out as much. I don't know. It seemed creepy. Yeah. Cause it's like a guy climbs in my window. Like, even if he looks like Val Kilmer, I'm calling the damn cops. Oh my God. Especially if he literally says to you, Hey, I followed you here. <laughs> yeah. It's like, Nope. <laughs> but what if he talked like this? Hey, what's up? <laughs> All right. Hmm. You got a point. Yeah, that a lot does. To I uh, came in through the window. <laughs> Better tell my old man. <laughs> come on, come take a walk. It's a nice night. <laughs> um, but like, wait. Else, to get yeah, back to what I, you're I, saying about is representation is depiction endorsement, right? I think one of the problems with this movie is, I mean, this scene is a good example. All these scenes are good examples. You know, it's because Val Kilmer is really hot. Then yeah. it seems like, and he always seems to be in a good mood. Do you know what I mean? Everybody, yeah. he's doing terrible things to everyone around him, but he seems extremely hot and very happy the whole time. So in a way, it's hard to root against him. You know, you're like, mm-hmm. you just want to be like, oh, you know, he's just being Jim. You know, but 
Well, okay. So another, I guess, another example of um of um Oliver Stone's misogyny. So Nico, you know, oh, a, a really interesting artist in her own right. Like she exists in this movie to take her top off and blow Jim Morrison. That is yeah. her only purpose in this film. Well, this movie hates the New York scene. Oh my god! Yeah. Right? Right? <laughs> And I, I I have to say, like, we're talking about Oliver Stone's misogyny, but I also think there's a homophobia in Oliver Stone's mm. work that you especially yeah. especially see yeah. later in the year oh with JFK, where he blames, he blames the JFK assassination on a cabal of homosexuals in New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, that's what he does. Um Whereas in this, it's like the like they call the Warhol scene vampires. Andy Warhol is depicted as this like leering. He's licking his lips. Everything he says, like Like, wants to fuck him so bad. And like, there's something about that. The like they were. I mean, uh, sexually, the New York scene, this particular scene, was much more open and and free. And Mm -hmm. was well, there's shots of trans people at this factory party that he goes to, right? Where it's like not cool really at all they don't seem to be trans people oliver stone seems to have cast like the most masculine people he could find and been like put on this pearl necklace and i mean i mean i don't know for sure but it's very it doesn't seem um like favorable to the trans community this shot got a nice little cameo (laughs) of um paul williams as yes um, yeah Yes, I would. I was very excited about when Paul Williams showed up. Yeah, that was delightful. Some really good cameos in this film. And I mean, yeah, Chris, Chris as, as much as we as bad as, yeah, as Andy Glover. Warhol is, right? Crispin Glover as Andy Warhol is. Yeah. it is pretty fun to see. And then you have Michael Madsen yes. in there as well. He appears. Billy um, Idol. I don't. Billy Idol appears later as one of the bar flies that Morrison is hanging out with, and. I don't want to take to I want to talk a little bit more about the the depiction of the Velvet Underground scene and, and you know Nico's scene but Michael Wincott as their producer is like one of my favorite actors of that era. I'm so happy you brought him up cuz I lo- like I love him. He's like one of the so most like reliable 90s villain actors. Like I I'm so excited when he shows up in everything and anything. Yeah, I just recently watched Deadwood or Dead Man the other night and he's mm-hmm. incredible in Dead Man as like one of the three bounty hunters that's after Johnny Depp's character. Mm-hmm. Um it's just like as soon as you hear his voice, you know who it is. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 exciting to 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 have him there. But you brought up the the Nico depiction which is that he basically meets Nico and she's like, "Are you famous? Can I suck your dick?" Yeah. And like that's it. That's her whole her whole part. <laughs> And it's like she was famous for her bangs. Where are her bangs? <laughs> like, and that's another scene, right? Where it's like, I think I'm supposed to hate this character. Yeah. Because he's getting a blowjob from Nico. His wife opens oh the God. elevator and sees them doing it. And he laughs in her face. He yeah, laughs and she brutal. laughs. And they're just, and it's shot, but, and it's shot like a nightmare. <laughs> like, yeah. yes. Like they're evil and sadistic. And so it's another moment where it's like, oh, I don't think he is endorsing this character. I think he wants me to hate this man because also, he, this is evil. Like the way she's like, the way Meg Ryan's kind of styled in that scene too. Like she looks kind of frumpy. Like she's got like this kind of matronly hat on. Like she looks like a a librarian grandma. Like the way- <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Compared like, oh, to, you know, Jim. like Nico and all her vinyl and, you know, her vinyl bustier or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, the, I agree that I thought the I thought this whole 
New York scene scene was very odd, especially because like I really like this whole scene. I think all this stuff is really cool. Yes. And they're yeah. playing these Velvet Underground songs during it. And they say something like, like the I it I forget exactly the lines, but it's like the idea that the that Jim Morrison would do something with the Velvet Underground is like the devil, you know. Whereas <laughs> I was like, oh, it would be really cool if he did something with the Velvet Underground. That would rule, like I, yeah, right. I would, he should do something with the Velvet Underground. They're a lot better and more. They're a lot more talented. Yeah, yeah and they that can, party. I would really like to be at that party, and it just seems like like Jim Morrison comes through, like a like a freaking bull in a china shop. Like Jim Morrison seems like the guy that ruins a lot of parties. Yeah, everybody else at the party seems to be having small conversations with their friends, you know, yeah. and like Jim Morrison. It's kind of like a place where weirdos can be. It's a safe space for kind of weirdos to be weirdos together. You know, it's like. And I do like how they depict Andy as, I mean, I don't know if this is the way it went or whatever, but Andy being in some like tiny like bathroom almost, but like black lit and just surrounded by like, you know, eight people that he thinks are really weird, you know? And yeah. <laughs> I have to say like, and I was reminded when this scene came up that one of the reasons that I really turned against the doors was because at one point I read, and it might have been the Lester Bangs things because he because he was an East Coaster, I, I believe as well, wasn't he? Um, and I think I I felt like uh, like the East Coast was the better of the punk scenes, or at the mm-hmm. very least the music scenes. And I was really into punk and Velvet Underground at the very were like considered the Godfathers of punk, and so therefore the Doors sucked because they were California hippies versus like East Coast speed taking cynics mm-hmm. who was like I at like 14 was able to recognize I related to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Same hard. Same. Um, So let's talk about the, the, the tripping scene, which I actually do think is probably the apex of the movie and the, one of the best depictions of uh, tripping uh, a a movie, a movies ever offered. Hmm. I agree. I I liked it, Maggie. I feel like I'm hearing some like skepticism. I mean, it is ridiculous in a way. Obviously, it's ridiculous. Like they're jumping around on top of a sand dune and doing little like pirouettes and like, and it's shot in this way that's yeah. ridiculous. But I thought I do also. I did also think it communicated the feeling of being on like mushrooms or on acid or something. Like you're saying, better it than somehow, a lot, anything else I've seen. Somehow, it somehow communicated the body high really well. Like yeah. most movies don't know how to do that and don't ever do it. Cause it seems, it's always seemed impossible to me. It's always, I've always felt like why even have a drug and a drug induced scene in a movie? If you can't, if it's impossible to depict that, but there was something about the way this was shot, the way that the sound design was the way that it was edited and the way that at times different actors would kind of do that, like deep chest breath that you do yeah. when like the yeah. body high is coming down. That I was like, Oh shit. That's, ex- that's exactly what it feels like. I definitely wouldn't be one of the people dancing around in the dirt <laughs> no and like, you know, talking about my father or something. But they oh, definitely maybe. sold, I think, so, the, like the kind of anxi- unsettling anxiety and release that comes with having a breakthrough under those circumstances, though. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, it, it overdoes it a little bit at one point with some of the visuals, but I do feel like it does a better job of communicating a hallucinatory feeling than like, Natural Born Killers, which goes out of its way to try to be an entirely hallucinatory movie. Did Oliver Stone have something to do with Natural Born Killers? He directed that too, right? Yeah, he, he directed, directed that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that was his big his big comment on on tabloid media. Yeah, <laughs> Oliver Stone, not one for subtlety. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. God. Though Natural Born Killers is 
a formative movie for me. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like when I was, when that soundtrack came out and Trent Reznor did it and, uh, you know, Jane's Addiction was on it and uh, NWA was on it uh, and Snoop was on it. And then the movie was just wildly violent and sexy. It was the cool, it was the coolest thing I could watch. <laughs> How old were you at, at that you age? It was like 94 or mm-hmm. 96, maybe. I think it was 96. 94. It was 94, 95. So I'd have been like fifth grade. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh my God, Ricky. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, but I mean, that said, I pro- I might not have seen it in fifth grade. Movies had a life in the '90s that were right. that was much longer than they are now. You yeah. know, like a movie would be popular for four years. There was like ten copies new... of it at Blockbuster for like five years. You know, because it was yeah it, a big deal it'd be on the new release shelf yeah. for like five years. Yeah. Um, so it's possible that I didn't see it till I was in like seventh or eighth grade or ninth grade. Yeah. But it definitely was like a. I, you know, you just didn't know movies could be like that at that age. Like, they probably like had what, the soundtrack though. Like when you, like if you're like a, a kid that's like leaning towards punk or anything, or like when you first get that kind of whiff of like transgressive art. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or something like, subversive. Oh, mom, and, mom and dad don't want me to watch this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're like two steps so- away from like a Richard Kern, like a Richard <laughs> Kern, like VHS. <laughs> <laughs> going out with my camera and trying to get like my other adolescent friends to take their clothes off and get photos of <laughs> no it's, it's cool this is art have you guys heard of this guy Larry Clark he's gonna guys, pay me is... a bunch of money for these videos it's cool <laughs> Henry Rollins and Lydia Lunch did it it's cool it's cool <laughs> um, there were moments in this movie where uh, especially in the first part of it mm-hmm. where people were talking and I kept thinking to myself, is this the way people talked in the sixties? It sounds awful. What it was like, like what? <laughs> like um, when they were like listening to his poetry or talking mm-hmm. about art, or even like when he showed his film in this class and they were like, Kyle, Mc- Kyle McLaughlin as Raymond Zarek was like, it's nonlinear. That's art, man. It's like, that's <laughs> not nonlinear. Doesn't mean art. <laughs> what are you talking about? You fuck. <laughs> I mean, I think everything in the beginning of the movie is so stilted. I mean, it's a two and a half hour movie. Like for me personally, the first like 45 minutes are my absolute least favorite parts of the movie. It was so difficult to even get through them. Like it was, I was like forcing myself to pay attention to it because everybody seems so reprehensible and so phony. And it seems really like music biopicy in a certain way where like everybody, all the characters are coming together and they're like, you know, they have their first rehearsal and they're doing like five of the biggest hits of the doors you know yeah and they're like hey yeah, maybe like have... hey i wrote a little song hey yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> the bohemian rhapsody of like uh, of like hey what do you think about this yeah that sounds pretty good hey why don't we try this over here why don't you do a minor and then uh oh shit cut to they're playing exactly. live to a group of groupies yeah, yeah exactly well yeah. i mean my like with the way like music biopics always fail it's it's like they try to put deeply complicated, like shove deeply complicated people into a hero's journey. And these people are yeah. not heroes. They're Yeah, exactly. They're musicians. Yeah. They're that's like the one thing like the I I do think the depiction and 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 conversation around musicians in the probably from the sixties into the to the early two thousands was so um such a lie 
in terms of how smart they were. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> artists as a whole, right? Like watching an interview with Val Kilmer, I was like, what a fucking idiot. You're like, he literally like, has no idea what he's talking about, but it's like, it's, he could just knows how to do something. He's like an athlete. Like you can't ask him yeah. to, to describe what he's doing. He's completely not equipped to do that, you know? But it was the same thing with musicians too, where you would get a musician that would be like, hey, you know, I'm just holding a mirror up to <laughs> society. And, you know, if society's violent, you know, that's just society, man. And like, you know, as like a 13 year old, you're like, fuck yeah. And then, like, I can't believe he finally said it. And then you hang out with musicians in your twenties and you're like, why aren't you guys smarter and nicer? Yeah. Yeah. It does. It, it always makes you feel really like, bad. Oh, like, because I never, I always, I hung out with musicians a lot. You know, I was a music publicist and I was a music writer for a long time. A lot of my friends in high school were musicians. And I never really learned how to play any musical instruments or anything. But I would be always be like, these fucking idiots can do it. And like, I can't do it, you know? Like, <laughs> um, I'm bouncing around a lot, but I just saw in my notes that at the, uh, and I, I, I don't want to go without saying this, but at the Andy Warhol party, the factory mm-hmm. party, when he meets Andy Warhol for the first time, it's a, there's another moment where uh, Oliver Stone shoehorns a classic like 60s phrase into the scene without the person really being on camera. And Paul Williams says in the background of the scene, everyone will be famous for 15 days. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just in the background, not part of the scene, but for some reason they felt the need to shoehorn Andy Warhol's most famous phrase that they also butcher because it's yeah. 15 minutes, not days. Is that, is that yeah. really what he says in the movie? He says 15 he days. Says, he says 15 days, oh yes. God, oh, I so was dumb. something I'm kind of curious about. I want your thoughts on. So what do you think of Oliver Stone's choice to have his son play young Jim in the beginning? <laughs> Is that his son? Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense. He's been in a few Oliver Stone movies. He's the kid. He's he's um uh he's Juliette Lewis's younger brother in um Natural Born Killers mm-hmm. in, in the in the sitcom piece with Rodney Dangerfield. Um I don't know. I feel like he was always just throwing his kid in movie in the movie. I mean, he doesn't really. Do, I mean, it's like we're saying about um, Meg Ryan. Like the kid doesn't really have to do anything except like look out a window at a car accident. So like, yeah, he is kind of like bl- vacant, like blank, you know. <laughs> but also, he is. That's I mean, just it. They're just. He's like, okay, kiddo. All right, now look out there. Like it's like real something real scary. Okay, <laughs> you know. I bet I'm. I'm almost positive it wasn't like okay, kiddo. Now look out the window. It was like why are you looking out the yeah, fucking fair, window? Fair, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like yeah, or like that famous Oliver Stone subtlety of his um, he's the he's the film professor, and he's like, what oh, do you think? Yes. The, what do you think the filmmaker was trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was so good. That was so good with the goatee. Oh <laughs> he just God. like walks into frame. Okay, what do you guys think? <laughs> what was this filmmaker? What What do you think of this art? This filmmaker's artistic vision. You know, does someone stand up and say like someone should? I mean, if it was a true Oliver Stone masterpiece, a student would have stood up and said, "Well, I think he was using the I think he was using the main character to depict uh, the idolization and the fall of a decade's ba- uh, main ideas." <laughs> then the movie would have progressed from there. <laughs> and then the movie just ends. All right, credits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. By but you you know what you bring up that we I can't believe we haven't touched on this is probably the most famous element of this movie because of its parody in Wayne's World Two, oh, yes. which is uh, in the beginning when we see Jim Morrison as a boy, uh, aka Oliver Stone's son. Um, he is they're driving by a car crash with a Native American man who is dying. Who we are supposed to believe 
soul then inhabits uh, Jim Morrison's cha- uh, body and turns him into a uh, spiritualist, into um, turns you turns know, him into a living shaman, living yes, shaman, exactly. a mystic. I mean, yeah. We haven't. I haven't even touched on my feelings of like ethnocentrism. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I mean just the blatant racism, the magical, the magical Indians. No, but see, they're saying the yes. Indians are good, so it's not racist. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, a, and this might be too, too broad, but I think in that you and in his depiction of women and his depiction of uh, LGBTQ people, both in this and in yeah. JFK, you really get a sense of like Oliver Stone's idea of like when America was right and when it went wrong. Mm -hmm. And somehow he was like the peak of the left in the early nineties when it's just totally tinged with this idea that like America is a white place and it fell apart when white America went wrong. Right. There's really like no one exists beyond those stories. And if they do, it's only in service of white America's Oh yeah. No, he's incredibly reactionary. His brain brain like legitimately broke at some point. Yeah, I mean, he's one of these guys. He's like Glenn Greenwald or something. Like he's so yeah. he's so liberal that he supports fascist dictators. You know, like like Vladimir Putin. He is, loves so much. He thinks he's so great. But this is apparently <coughs> before his brain broke, right? And yeah. I think, and it's not just him. I think it's where we talk about this on this podcast before, which is like these sort of like unchecked, unself-aware, unaware misogynies and racisms of this period of time that were just totally taken for granted. And his entire worldview is, I I think, one of that, where, as I said, any minority character, uh, be they gender or, or race or sexuality, is in service of a white male yeah. uh, hero. Well, I think this is what I mean. So... Everyone just exists to know Jim. That no one, <laughs> yes. like, like yes. everyone around, no one really has a an interior life. I mean, Jim barely has one, but like everyone else, is just kind of exists to re- just to know him. Yeah, well, supposedly right. that was one of the things the band hated about the movie too, was they wanted it to be like equally about all the members of the Doors, <laughs> but like, right. this is not about the Doors. It's about Jim Morrison, and it's not even really about Jim Morrison. Like we keep saying, it's a, it's about Jim Morrison is the like recept like is the receptacle for all of Oliver, Oliver Stone's like unresolved anxieties. <laughs> exactly. Like gener- I would have liked. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen the the Bohemian Rhapsody version of this movie where the entire band got a say, and every and like. Jim Morrison was depicted with like kid gloves. <laughs> he, he was like walking. Like there's out of... one scene where they're like, "Late again, huh, Jim?" And he's like, "Come on, guys." <laughs> he's like walking out of Alcoholics Anonymous into like a bright white light, and like someone who's still struggling is like, is like Riders on the Storm, man. And he turns around and goes, "Into this house we're born." And then walks out. <laughs> Have you ever seen Bohemian Rhapsody where like he's? Freddie Mercury's walking out of the hospital after finding out he has AIDS and he walks by, he's walking literally into like a white light out of the hospital doors, just like a, and he's walking by this emaciated person who is a, you know, ostensibly a a gay man dying of AIDS who looks at, (laughs) looks at Freddie Mercury as he walks by and goes, Deo. And (laughs) Freddie Mercury turns to him and goes, Deo. And then walks out. Oh god, that oh, movie is god. so fucking good. I know I have never seen that movie. Is that literally the end of that movie? No, it's just a part in the movie. Oh god. What a fucking piece of garbage. One hundred percent. An amazing piece of garbage. It's an incredible piece of garbage. Yeah. Um 
but yeah, I do, I do, I do feel like that there is a a lot of blind spots in Oliver Stone's worldview that you can see in this and especially in yeah. JFK. Well, he I mean, to be fair, it's like, you know, this yes, is society exactly. then, right? I mean, like everything, Billy Joel, like the Wonder Years, I don't know. It's like Amer- it, America was such a white country at this point in time. And it's- No, our depictions of it were. Well, no, this is what I mean. Right? This is what I mean, the mass culture, the mass culture of America. Yeah. And I think what's so great about doing this show is getting to like re-examine so much of that because like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it was completely unquestioned at the time. Like there was an us- in America and it was white people, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. that's awful. That's absolutely, and I'm so glad that it's not like that anymore. Right. Like even his setting Meg Ryan on fire is about how that affects his character. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Not that she almost died. It's like not a big deal. Well, you, they, they show her getting out. It's, it's fine. You know, <laughs> Meg, I'm sorry, you were going to say something. I think. Oh, I, I, I totally, I think it, Oh no! I was remembered. Um, like I, when I was looking at the um, at the um cast listing on IMDb, or I maybe I noticed this in the credits, but one of the Native American actors, she's just listed as old crone. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, dude. Well, and also his his interpretation of Native Americans in both this and Natural Born Killers, which has uh, a Native American fetishism, is one yeah. of mystic fetishism. Yeah. Right, they exist to sort of spiritually in in lift, in lift, lift up, embiggen <laughs> uh, uh, even the smallest man. Yeah, uh, the the white characters in the movie. When we're, uh, I wrote this down. Like when we are talking about the massaging the movie, there's a great moment where we see Morrison in a bar drinking with his drinking buddies, Michael Madsen and Billy Idol, and then he pisses on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, gets thrown out of the bar and cut to him. And he's walking up the sidewalk with groceries in his hand with Meg Ryan. And he's clearly falling apart. And all that she is talking about is things that she can spend money on. Mm-hmm. Right? Like he's like clearly falling apart. And she's like, and then we could shop here and I could buy this and I could buy that. And I was like, yeah, okay. This is like Oliver Stone's. Yeah. <laughs> like was women going- always be shopping. Was he going through a divorce? Like what was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, where was that? Like, every time he hangs out with his wife, he just wants to, like, yell at her about his next project. And she's like, I, okay. And he's like, oh, you talk about it shopping. She's like, can we get some more food today? <laughs> You're always shopping. You're so materialist. She's like, um, maybe if you could, you know, the kid that our son needs, like, private school money or something. He's like, that's why I put him in the fucking movie so he could get residuals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, how absurd was her wig? <laughs> Meg oh, Ryan's God. wig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, bigger than her head. Yes. Like entirely like <laughs> like way too way oversized. And doesn't that's she already have hair that's kind of like that? Why didn't they do this to her? <laughs> Did you guys ever see um Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip? Hell yes. Okay, do you remember that that like movie that um Sarah Paulson's character goes off to make? Oh no, but I bet it's incredible. Yeah, it's um it just reminds me a lot of this movie. Like she goes off she she goes off to play I think like some kind of like a Janis Joplin type figure. Oh, I was going to say and it's like when Janis Joplin or when uh when uh oh my god, from 30 Rock when Jenna Maroney goes to play Janis Joplin. Yeah, yeah, it's basically this movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's a moment in the movie when they're in the new where they're at New Haven and things are starting to fall apart and there's a huge crowd of people and it pans across this huge arena of people and lands on a journalist speaking into a microphone about how the doors have started to suck. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and when he finishes his rant <laughs> John John Densmore happens to be standing <laughs> right behind him. Like, it makes no sense that Densmore would be like out in the general public of the audience, and that he would also be standing behind a journalist, like randomly. He's just like looking around, I, you know. <laughs> I found that like John Densmore was the most relatable character character because he's just like so always barely tolerating Jim's bullshit. Yes, yes. 100%. Like you see him just like. Like playing the drums and just clenching his jaw, like please do not fuck up my bag. <laughs> For the love of God, <laughs> there's this great stuff. I mean, you were talking about there's all sorts of great behind the scenes stuff about this movie, and there's a great mm. little clip of uh, Kevin Dillon and the real John Densmore like playing drums together. And I guess John Densmore taught Kevin Dillon how to play the drums for this movie, and um, like completely, I guess from scratch or whatever. And there's this clip of them playing and they're playing completely exactly in sync like next to each other and it, John Densmore keeps going he's the best people I ever had it's amazing no seriously he is and then they're just doing it like exactly the same I was like this is really weird <laughs> like no, no Kevin Dillon was a good like like he looks like John Jen- Densmore too like that was another good like casting yeah Whaley looks a little like Krieger but not 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 so much but Whaley's also just like a pleasure to have on the screen yeah oh, always always yeah. Where it's like, man, um, Eric, all you need is the wig. Like, he has such a distinct hairstyle. <laughs> well, I did appreciate they gave Kyle McLaughlin, like, several different wigs. Yeah. Um, as his hair gets progressively longer and he gets weirder and weirder, you know? like. Well, I like it. They even switched his wig in the same scene. Like, like when they were, like, like they definitely, like, you can tell, like, the one of the wigs is, like, the housewife wig. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's the Gladys Kravitz wig. Like, when, when he's on the beach, um... When he's on the beach and Jim's reading his lyrics, he's like, and then the light bulb goes off over his head. It's like, that's one wig. And then they get up and walk. That, way, that wig is my favorite wig, by the way. That yeah. one. It's yeah. so ridiculous. Like, And then they're walking down the beach and it's like, wait, it's the same scene. And he's wearing a totally different wig. It's blonder. <laughs> it's a little more windswept. It's... <laughs> the first one has that really tight kind of like wave in it, like crimp, yeah. you know, where, yeah. 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 It's like he's had his hair up all day vacuuming the house, right? Oh, yeah, no, that definitely looks like a Carol Brady, like a later season Carol Brady wig. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, like they're like three levels. Not e- Like, they're different floors. Like, that is a three-floor wig. It's, I mean, frankly, I found it to be beautiful. I thought it was yeah, amazing, yeah. you know? The, um, the end of the movie when the, the band is breaking up and um, they have recorded their last album, which was a nightmare to record because Jim was so fucked up on drugs and alcohol, he needed his wife to come in and give him a blowjob while he was singing in order to be able to perform another just incredible depiction by Oliver Stone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where he's Jim has basically like thrown things at everybody. And I think probably called her names and she's in there crying because it's, it's, it's right after he's tried to set fire to her. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and she comes in and, uh, gives him a blowjob to make him sing and then says, I love you. And that's supposed to be there. I don't, I, and also by this point, there's this whole undercurrent. What is the movie saying? <laughs> yeah, right. That, and he, then he's, he's like impotent through most of the movie too. 
Yeah, which is a well, really weird detail, be. by the way. Like, is that true? And like, I, I, I was personally very, it was this metaphorical in some way by Oliver Stone. Like, what was this about that Jim Morrison is impotent in the movie? I, I assumed it was like just the byproduct of booze and coke. Yeah. There is a great scene where he is being impotent and the woman he's having sex with says like, hey, try some Coke. And I was like, yeah, that'll yes. fix it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. She, goes, she goes, have some Coke. It'll loosen you up. And it's like, one, but, it's not going to fix his boner. And two, it's not going to loosen yeah, him up. Have you done Coke before? Both have you of those are coke? way have wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have in my notes, I'm looking at it right now. It says, LOL, Coke to get a boner and loosen <laughs> <Exactly>. up. <laughs> Especially if you're already having trouble getting a boner. Like, if that's your starting point and then you're going to do coke, like, no, 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 no. Yeah, people really didn't know about the drugs that they were doing in the 60s, did they? They really had no idea. They're going to break up and they're listening to their final album together at um, Ray Manzarek's house. Oh, which is another great moment. Uh, Morrison enters the house and there's this great little detail about, like, Manzarek becoming suburban where... uh, Morrison sees Manzarek's wife as he walks in and he goes, you cut your, you cut your hair. She goes, yeah, we're trying to have another baby. And he goes, you had to cut your, the hair was getting in the way. And it's like, they live in the suburban house and it's clearly trying to say like, if, if you didn't want to burn out from the sixties, you had to turn into this sort of like capitalist corporate, like capitalist machine that pumped out babies. And you had to become like a hair. Jerry, you had to become like a Jerry Rubin and, and like go from, hippie yes. stockbroker <laughs> exactly exactly that's ex- <laughs> and that's exactly what he's saying in that moment and morrison like couldn't do it man and so he had to die he had he, there's no way he could live through that but then he <laughs> they listen to the song and they're all like some of our best work that's right no one thought we could do it but it's some of our best work and then jim goes i have a present for you and he gives them all a copy of his own poetry book. Oh, and it was dude. another moment in the movie where it's like, I'm sorry, am I supposed to hate this character? I really feel like I'm supposed to hate this man because what a horrific thing to what do. What a horrific the self-centered gift to other people. Yes, yes. And they kind of turn it over. There's like a tight shot on it and they're like turning it over and then flipping through it. And like the first page is blank. And I was like, yeah. like what the fuck is going on with this? And then oh. it's called like an American Prayer, right? By Jim yeah. Morrison, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Unreal. Oh, um, I also like when I when I he was like in the at the party with the kids. Like my, my the only thing I'm thinking is who lets Jim Morrison around kids? <laughs> this very weird scene where again he is wearing an Indian headdress and he has yeah. brought to this child's birthday party a doll that he has had specially made of himself. <laughs> <laughs> That's his present, to the, and the doll is horrific looking. By the way, it is not a cute doll. Well, it's probably the only reason he gave her the doll is because she wasn't old enough to read, like to read yet, so he couldn't give her the poetry. <laughs> exactly, book. exactly. Let's be let's be honest. Oliver Stone goes to a party, one hundred percent brings Blu-ray copies, like of the newly released World Trade Center Blu-ray <laughs> for his friends. This isn't right? this isn't like, this isn't out like, until next week. So this is this is pretty. I'm not supposed to give these out. Okay. <laughs> Don't tell anyone I gave this to you. <laughs> it's like the new 4K Ultra HD of the doors he like gives to a couple friends of his. And like, I've seen it, Oliver. I've seen it. Yeah, but this is the 4K. It's really, I think you're going to really like it a lot more. But I told you I didn't like it when it came out. I don't know why you would give this. Yeah, to me. I know. I didn't quite get. I, I, this is really my vision. This is this is my vision. This one. There's a commentary on just him being like, oh, yeah, I nailed it. Oh, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oliver Stone, baby. <laughs> every every shot, he's like, the crew didn't think we could get this, but I pushed them until, uh, well, until a few of them started crying. But we got it. Looks good now. <laughs> Looks good now. Immortalized on film, as they say. As they say. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I guess... I will say one more thing before we get to the the questions, the final questions, which is that I do, I did have a moment in this movie, have a moment in this movie where I wish there were more movies about the non-famous victims of rock stars. Yeah. yeah. Um, like I ke- I kept thinking about that woman that wrote a book about her relationship with Lindsay Buckingham mm. and how he was like a coke fiend that terrorized her and was like Ike Turner abusive. Um, and I want to see that movie. I want to see that, that that movie from her perspective. Not to say that I want to see a movie like specifically movies about victims or anything, but we definitely don't ever get movies about the victims of rock stars. Yeah, we like get a, a like peripheral people. Yeah, a Laurie Maddox movie would be really interesting. Who's Laurie Maddox? She was one of the baby groupies from the seventies. So I think her and like Sable Star, I think was the other one. Um, oh, yeah, but like David Bowie, she took her virginity when she was 13 and she was kind of famously um i guess when she was 15 she was very famously like jimmy jimmy page's consort but that story is really dark like he like hid her away like he hid her away because he knew that was illegal like and he i think like he kidnapped her and i think he just like left her in a city when he was done with her like dropped her off in some city with no money i was like all right bye and just I mean that is the almost famous story except mm-hmm. the almost famous story was written for families. Yeah. <laughs> to watch together. <laughs> but like all those girls in that movie are supposed to be like 12 and 13. Yeah. Except they're played by 20-year-old actresses. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so Lori Lori Maddox is um that would be an interesting story. I'm trying to think like who <sighs> else. You know who would have done an amazing job directing that movie is Larry Clark. Oh Jesus. <laughs> I mean, he's the only one who would have the done only it one with the courage, right? I, I that's what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> you you make fun, but I am a believer. <laughs> so we uh, ask these questions uh, at the end of every episode, and uh, I think we're getting there. We're 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 not reaching the length, the running time of of, of this oh one like God, we did really, the last movie. Is, is we, Ricky now has some kind of perverse incentives to like have the longest episodes possible. <laughs> I definitely um, did a labored exhale when I looked at the running time of this movie. I was like, okay. <laughs> Agree, but Same. I will Same. say it goes by. It gets like, better. I think it yeah. gets better. Yeah. It's just so well made. Um, it's hard to kind of take your eyes off of it. It's not like a a two and a half hour movie now where you're like oh my god i mean really my wife famously to me falls asleep very early every night of her life and she stayed up until like 1 a.m watching this movie even though she didn't really have any interest in it like at the beginning of the movie she literally stood up in front of the tv and started playing with our cat like blocking the tv screen because she was like so little paying attention to it but then she ended (laughs) up staying up really late to watch the entire movie you know um so uh the first question is um favorite part very uh bland generic question but maggie what was your uh, favorite part of the of, of the doors wow that is a great question um <laughs> i think my favorite part is when he jumps all over the thanksgiving duck you know after he threatens his girlfriend his partner with a knife you know but what's so interesting is that he's like initially sweet in that scene where like 
you know, she's being kind of neurotic and can't really get her shit together because he gave her acid. Yeah. He's like trying to help, but then he very quickly has no patience when like she has a real hard time. And also when his mistress shows up, like everything is his fault. He's the catalyst for all this right. chaos and mess. But like initially he's patient and then can't handle it and loses it. Oh, you know what? I also enjoyed the um, press conference scene. That was fun. Oh, when the um, when Oliver Stone's camera pans down at Kathleen Quinlan's legs. Yeah, yeah, but I just <laughs> I, I really enjoyed like the the sunglasses, his outfit, like Jim's outfit. Like there was some good um fashion porn, fashion porn in this movie from that era. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, the, yeah, the production design all around, especially in the yeah. beginning when they're starting to play clubs on the strip. Like all the footage of the strip and the swirling camera and, and, and that scene where Morrison is like standing up in front of the crowd and yeah. jumping mm-hmm. up and down. It looks I mean, just the amazing. way the lights look out of focus behind him, they look like lights from 1967. You know, they don't look like yeah, lights yeah. from 1991. It's like very, very well done. What um? What's your favorite part, Chris? Oh, I mean, we talked about it already, but I think it's like the drugs in the desert scene. I just think it's so well done. And I do think there's that whole section. Like, so this is obviously the section they go out to the desert and do drugs and they see the Indian and dance around on sand dunes and stuff. But like we said, it gives such an amazing depiction of the feeling of being on a a psychedelic drug like that. Like so often psychedelics in movies are about like, you have some kind of crazy hallucination, you know, where it's like your like mom's eye gets very big and, and then it's melting and you know. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas this was why when my experience of more what it's really like to be on psychedelics, um, which is just this kind of weird, everything's distorted and hazy and you're experiencing the world in, in, in a weird way. But it I think it like, feels like the landscape is breathing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But like, um, yeah, I remember yeah, whatever, yeah, what no one wants to hear that. Um, but like, you know, I think the whole the doors becoming famous section is kind of like shot like you know it's a trip you know which is like a cliched saying like you know fame is a trip but i think that that is kind of the whole thing is just shot in this episodic dreamlike way where things flow together in a crazy way and jim morrison is always laughing and until things start going poorly but there's maybe 30 or 40 minutes where they're they're becoming famous and it's all it's all like a trip and I think that that even that that is well done and especially the actual drug scene. It's like a floating roving camera with that kind of like overexposed backlight throughout that you get in like a number of Oliver Stone movies in yeah. this period of time. It's very like um, I mean it's a not to jump to the next question but it's like a very '90s sensibility, right? It's very very '90s. Yeah, it's you get it in Spike Lee, you get it in 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 stone and then you get it as well with Scorsese and casino later that, that, that kind of lighting. Um, and you get it a little bit with bringing out the dead. I think bringing out the dead and maybe even casino were both shot by Robert Richard, Robbie Richard, Robert Richardson as well. Who shot, who shot this and shot Hollywood and in, in, uh, inglorious bastards Mm. and a lot of Tarantino's later stuff. Wow. Ricky, Um, what was your favorite part dog? My favorite part was very simple. And it was when Jim was drunk out of his mind, not being able to record the last album, and um, was getting yelled at by Michael Wincott, and uh, was getting frustrated with him, and said, took off his headphones and said, hey, why don't you suck a fart out of my asshole? (laughs) (laughs) That was absolutely 100% my favorite part of the movie. I fell on the ground laughing because I thought it was 
so out of character of this self-serious movie to suddenly have a character say, suck a fart out of my asshole. Um, it just felt like a completely different movie. <laughs> uh, and it also reminded me of at the beginning of Citizen Ruth where Laura Dern says that to some uh, to a guy in the car next to her. <laughs> Do you remember um, the individual lines of Citizen Ruth that well? <laughs> I've seen Citizen Ruth multiple times. I love Citizen Ruth, but like, yeah. Well, yeah, there's a scene where she's pregnant or something, and she tells the guy that's like was fucking her at the top of the movie that she uh, is pregnant, and he kicks her out. And then later, she's driving down the street with the woman who's like kind of adopting her, and they happen to pull up next to that guy at a red light. And he rolls down the window to yell at her, and she rolls down her window and says, suck a fart out of my asshole. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great line. I've not seen that movie, but it's been playing on um, Pluto TV a lot. Oh, oh, it's it a it's a great great movie. It's a very like '90s political satire in a certain way, but it, I, I I haven't watched it recently. But I, I I always thought it was really good. Well, you had me at '90s and Laura Dern, <laughs> and and Alexander Payne. It's his first movie. Ah. yeah. So it's that then election. Um, uh, so because. Uh, 30 years ago when we started this podcast was 1990 and if every week it's going to be 30 years ago it's all going to be the 90s unless we do this podcast for 20 years (laughs) fingers uh, crossed ricky (laughs) um so we asked you know what was the most 90s thing about this movie uh maggie what what for you was the most 90s thing about this movie meg ryan yeah it's a great answer it's a great answer yeah, I had Demi Moore for our last movie as well because she <laughs> felt like such a '90s uh, thing, '90s thing for me. But Meg Ryan even more so. Yeah, because like, why is Meg Ryan in this movie other than the '90s? Like, you know, it's honestly weird that he even auditioned other women when he ended up casting Meg Ryan. Like, was she not a big a big star yet? Lisa Edelston um, auditioned for that role too, which is interesting. Right, like, why was he... And so did Heather Graham. Heather Graham's screen test with Val Kilmer is actually on YouTube. Oh, really? Yeah, it's kind of a bummer. Is she not good, or what? She's Heather Graham. (laughs) 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 She's like like an innocent soul who's, like, not a great actor. And, like, she's with uh, Val Kilmer, who's a goddamn maniac. Exactly. Exactly. He's, like, chewing Like, you can just imagine, like, you can just imagine the horrific things that were said to her that she had to feel both before, during the test, and after the test. Like, yeah, from from Stone and Kilmer. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, the the screen test finished. Val Kilmer just finished probably, like, grabbing her butt on camera and then was like, hey, look, you know, this has been fun. If you want to, like, maybe talk about the part later and do some script reading, my my room number is uh, 233. You know, why don't you come by? She's like, oh, okay, thanks. And then she's like walking out of the room and as she's walking out, Stone comes running over and he's like, hey, you were really great. Um, if you want to like go over the script a little bit more, <laughs> later, this I'm room 232. Um, Chris, what was your uh, most 90s part of the movie? Most 90s part of the movie. Well, I got to say like this, well, first of all, it's this style of Oliver Stone movie was is such a sensibility of the 1990s. This and like Natural Born Killers, this, this kind of like hyper celebrity culture, you know, myth making like uh sexy drug catastrophe like i feel like this is this is was very oliver stone in the 90s it was very influential i used to watch a lot of movies like this i mean i guess the the ones i watched were more tarantino influenced but like 
you know, a movie where Eric Stoltz does heroin in Paris and robs a bank, you know, like mm-hmm. this... killing Zoe, killing Zoe. Killing Zoe. I love that movie. It's a great movie. I was watching that movie when Princess Diana died. I turned off the VHS and then the, <laughs> the TV news came on and Princess Diana was dead. <laughs> where, where were you when Princess Diana died? I was at home watching Killing Zoe. Exactly. <laughs> I was watching the Roger Avery film Killing Zoe. A movie with a lot of car chases in Paris, you know, so, you know. Um, but, um, but also I think the whole, the whole sensibility of Jim Morrison that is in this movie also is so reminiscent of a certain kind of nineties culture to me, like mm-hmm. Scott Weiland yeah. and Stone Temple Pilots, right? Like that whole universe yeah. of people is like, that was a huge chunk of the nineties was, was people acting like this. I'm going to go with sixties nostalgia. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I do think. I think the Wonder Years premieres in 90 or 91. Might be like 89 or something, but yeah, pretty close. But it's on the cusp. Um, yeah, and I think that the you get Apollo 13 in the 90s. You get JFK. Oh, it's 88, the Wonder Years. Might be. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever, like you said, on the cusp. I'm still going to roll with this. Um and there's this sense that of like a, a a real interest and examination of this. Not even I wouldn't say a real examination because nothing really started to get examined. I think until ten years ago, maybe five, <laughs> maybe um, four. Yeah, right. Right. Like critical theory perspectives and lenses actually started being applied to um, news and pop culture about three or four years ago. Yeah, um, but it does feel like the '60s became the nostalgic decade for the 90s and then the late 90s became nostalgic for the 70s where you started seeing like even though Days and confused is 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 the early 90s i think later in the decade you get like detroit rock city you get mm-hmm. that 70s show mm-hmm. and then you start hitting the 80s maybe a little later even though the wedding singer is like 1999 i think maybe i'm off but i feel like it's the 60s how about that stop giving go. data points like i agreed with you like yeah, <laughs> just let it go. Stop, <laughs> stop contradicting myself. Yeah, no, I think where does right. chart come from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wait, you're like got Charlie. Graphs? What's happening? You're like Charlie Day, and it's always sunny. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's all wrong because I keep being like, well, actually, uh, no, that's not right. Let me move that over here. <laughs> um, no, I think um, that's totally right. Sixties nostalgia. I mean, in the eighties, it was fifties nostalgia, right? I mean, it's just this cycle of yes. things, right? I mean, Back to the Future and a million things. Like, I used to watch like Teen Angel on the Disney Channel, you know, which was about like a, like a kid that died drag racing and is now a ghost that helps you get dates or something, you know? Like, oh my god! And th- isn't the nineties when we got those like made-for-TV movies like the sixties? Yes. yes, yes, right, late nineties. Yeah, and like also like there was all like the VH1 docs about '60s bands, and so like behind the music was really in the '90s, and like you were getting the docs. Like initially, they were all about like '60s bands, mm-hmm. and I think there was like a re, a rediscovery, even though there is this every five years of the Beatles in the '90s yeah. as well, oh, with well, like CD the, technology, like getting to reissue yes. all their albums again. You know, exactly, exactly. Um, so. Um, because this movie came out 30 years ago, uh, we ask uh, what we've grown out of since this movie came out. Hmm. Um, that can be things that the movie did wrong, you know, cultural things. It could just be technical stuff that the movie does that you wouldn't see in a movie now. Um, 
uh, what for you, Maggie, is something that we have grown out of that this movie has? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I can we come back to me? I'm curious to hear what yeah. your answers yeah. are. I'm yeah, absolutely. I, I was meant I I meant to send these to you earlier. Sorry, uh, that's okay. Ricky, Ricky. Um, I, I mean, I could have done it too, and I didn't. So yeah, it's on me. Also, um. I think, I mean, for me, like what we've grown out of, like as much as we're talking about the tension between depiction and endorsement, I think that this movie is like pretty often on the side of Jim Morrison and lets a lot of things go by unexamined that might otherwise necessitate like a little more gravity and seriousness to them. Like what you mentioned, like trying to burn your wife alive in the house and then just like not mentioning it again for the rest of the movie. Um, I know that it's not a hundred percent an endorsement, but there is so much of the movie that just kind of doesn't deal with it. You know, I I don't, there's no sense with Meg Ryan's character. There's no sense of like empathy from the part of this movie on what she might be going through. There's no like Jesus Christ, this poor fucking woman. And like this abuse that she's taking, she, the movie really thinks that she is somehow like an, an equal part in this. Yeah. Or it's like, I mean, the movie treats her like a nag. I mean, there's this behind the scene interview with Meg Ryan where she's like, oh yeah, Pam, like what was she even doing in the 60s? She, I think she would have made a better yuppie. Like she, and then they cut right to that scene of her being like, people are coming over. I made a duck. I'm like, you know. <laughs> oh, I thought of one. Um, I think we've kind of grown out of, at least I hope we have that fetishism of Native Americans, that oh, idea God. that Native Americans are inherently mystic and- Mm-hmm. Yeah, inherently, just they only exist to unhold, like to unlock this greater plane of of consciousness for white people. Right. <laughs> I'd really like to see Oliver Stone interviewed about these elements of his movies from this period of time. Yeah, you know, like it doesn't have to be an interview that is meant to make him uncomfortable or you know put him on the spot. Because I admire a lot about his movies and and the audacity of his work. I think. Not to say that I would want to be the person who does this, because I do think you would get mad and maybe hit me. But um, <laughs> I think if someone were to interview him from a place of admiration, but also interested in confronting those mm-hmm. blind spots in his work, it could be a really fascinating conversation. Yeah. Like whether or not he would actually take to it or would be up for it, I don't know. He strikes me as the type who would potentially <laughs> yeah, just get right. defensive and hostile. Well, because yeah. the whole culture has moved on, right? I mean, how you, you're not saying, like, you're not calling anybody out, but you're just saying, like, in the way that society has evolved in the decades since like how do you look at this you know i think that would be really interesting yeah yeah i wonder i'm gonna i'm gonna send i'm gonna find a way to send him an email yeah this is your pitch for the show that cuts me out so i hate it it's a bad idea (laughs) (laughs) oliver oliver stone is my (laughs) co-host hey well welcome to 30 years later i'm your host ricky camillary with with my co-host oliver hey why don't you shut the fuck up ricky let me talk hold on a second here it's fucking i'm gonna go ahead and mute you okay shut up yeah (laughs) hey oliver how are you don't fucking ask me that question (laughs) like what kind of fucking response do you think you're gonna get to a question like that you know yeah (laughs) use your brain kid um so uh i think for me uh, what this is a is going to be a lame answer, and it's one that we've had to use on a number of occasions with with movies from this period of time. I feel like you can probably guess where I'm going. Chris, is it treatment of women? This one, uh, no, though though that is that 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 is true. But I just feel like we've talked about that. We've talked about that to death enough, guys. <laughs> um, 
No, uh, it's that um, it's that. Let's see how to put how to phrase this without using the phrase "you don't get movies like this." Anymore. Oh yeah, um, you don't get movies like this anymore. <laughs> just simply on a scale on the scale, the yeah. scale of an like an adult drama would just never be made on this. Well, kind look of at scale. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody, for instance, and Rocket Man. Like those are movies that could be this movie, but they're so much smaller scale. They're so much smaller scale, both in material theme um idea and then if you were to say like well what about once upon a time in hollywood which was like a movie for adults and was you know the budget that it was it's like yes but the thing that you get with once upon a time in hollywood is that like is an insanely tight script right that like he himself is picked over to death as soon as it's being handed to the studio with the top the biggest stars in the country are going to be in it right Mm -hmm. it's not there's going to be no one in it that's a small star they know exactly what they're getting. Um, with the doors, it really feels like you know they didn't. As far as I know, they didn't really have a finished script, or at least he knew he was going into it with problems, and they still got a humongous budget to make this adult movie, right? It's only like, mm. I think it's only like twenty or thirty million dollars less than what T two was that That's year. So fucking mm. crazy. I mean, well, I mean, it's kind. Of, oh no! After you, it's kind of like 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 um with Martin Scorsese's criticism of um comic book movies. I mean. I think what a lot of people missed when he when he made his comments was that like like they the reason he's kind of upset about their cultural dominance is cuz they kind of crowded out like all different kinds of movies being made like these right you, yeah. get, you know he's like, the only one who can make uh, an exploratory like well well budgeted scaled movie adult mm-hmm. movie I right. mean it's Literally easy to the forget only, these kinds the of movies one. existed today I mean it, it's not like it's a new phenomenon. It's been going on for years, right? But yeah, these kinds of comic book movies and comic book adjacent movies are the only things that get big budgets like this now. And even like, even in the beginning where it's sort of going through the motions of the sort of band's rise to fame, doesn't it still feel slightly more mythic just because of the way that they're able to shoot it and you buy into it a little bit more than when you're watching Bohemian Rhapsody and it feels like, cobbled together digital filmmaking yeah exactly 10 cameras in a room cut it together really fast everyone's doing an impression and like you know and now the lighting's a little too bright you know yeah this it's like there's a lot of craftsmanship that you you know as silly as some of his ideas are at the very least you're watching something that feels mythic in proportion Mm -hmm. right and i i just don't think you will ever see anything like that on the on the movie screen again you'll never see the scene where he walks that we mentioned before where he walks into the stadium and it's like dante's inferno with thousands of people dancing around a fire you will never see in a movie again like that just won't exist no it'll be even better ricky it'll be like orcs and it's like from the center of the earth there's like lava shooting up really high and like you know there's like these cool like flying guys flying around it in circles like that's even better than just like regular people dancing (laughs) if you're talking about Zack snyder's justice league (laughs) oh yeah baby oh yeah we live in a society i can't wait yeah Um, on that note, um, anybody have anything else they'd like to add before we, we, we wrap this, this puppy up? Sounds like not. I was leaving, (laughs) I was very graciously leaving space for our guests to say anything. Oh, you know what? Um, Patricia Keneally, um, made an appearance. 
as um, she conducts the woman, the journalist that, the witchy journalist who has that affair with Jim. Mm. She's actually the oh, woman yeah. conducting this the marriage ceremony. She's the real woman that had yes. the affair. Yes, and it, which is kind of incredible to me that she even showed up because I don't think the depiction was very kind to her. No, she seems like no, she's like a all. devil worshiping, like <laughs> temptress. But, yeah, like J- Ray Manzarek just kind of basically accuses her of ruining Jim's life, or well, more so than he's ru- doing it himself. <laughs> well, and also like her relationship to Satanism, fe- and and also her relationship to satanism and also being a member of the media that's exploiting him as as an idol feels very in line with how oliver stone feels about the parasitic nature of of media the media hates it hates the media and so therefore like by the she feels connected to that dante's inferno that he ends up walking into i think she's also at that that's the show no, it's New Haven that she's at. It's not that show. Mm. That, that, where, where Titus that Titus at. Welliver comes and maces him. <laughs> yes, yes, yes that Welliver was amazing to see Bosch mace Jim Morrison. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. In, in a very thick Brooklyn accent. <laughs> Bosch, has, Bosch has grown so much since those days. Oh my God, but you could still see a little of Bosch in him. Do you know what I mean? He's wearing a cop's uniform. Like He's, he's not beating people up inappropriately. Like, yeah. <laughs> Uh, look, guys, I was young, dumb, full of piss, right? Back in those <laughs> days, um, I'm Bosch now, okay? I, 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 I solve crimes calmly. <laughs> um, well, guys, thank you so much uh, for watching this, this two-and-a-half-hour epic um, depiction of a drunk asshole. Um, and uh, yeah, for people who are uh, listening... Um, you can look at Maggie's uh, stuff at Maggie Sirota's uh, Twitter and go back and li- read some of her, her writing. She's a wonderful writer and has done some uh, fantastic work. Oh, thank, thank you, so Ricky. For, of course. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And again, um, you know, suffering through this, uh, <laughs> no, I'm, this I'm, epic. I'm honored you invited me. Oh, well, um, you know, I can't say it enough. I think you're so funny. Um, um, so I thought it would be great to, and it was great to to have you on. I thought it'd be great, and I don't know. I don't and know, Maggie, I don't know. you were a big disappointment. I guess I learned my lesson about expectations. And <laughs> I thought hey, it would I be great, and guess what? It. it fucking was great. I'm a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I manifested it. <this. laughs>